Well, last week we took this look at what is commonly called the Beatitudes because the title uh, Beatitude comes from the Latin Beatitudo, meaning blessedness. And we looked and found the meaning of blessed was happy or oh how happy. Uh, and we looked at some of the happies. Happy are the humble in verse 3. Happy are the sad in verse 4, which seems like one of God's contradictions, doesn't it? Uh, happy are the meek in verse 5. Happy are the hungry in verse 6. Happy are the merciful in verse 7. And happy are the holy in verse 8. And we came to the conclusion that, that all these things that God says blessed are contradictions to the world around us. They're not what the world expects. God's economy is in direct opposition to what the world offers. Direct. Those who do not follow Christ cannot comprehend that. But those of us who do follow Christ can. And so our next verse here is, happy are the peacemakers. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. One thing we'd all understand is that peace is not the normal in this world. Or in, in some ways has been occurring in some part of the world constantly, at least for the past 5,000 years. The New York Times reported there have been 14,587 wars since the birth of Christ. In Jeremiah 6.14, written in uh, 680 BC, says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. With all the well-intentioned peacemakers in the world today, they usually fail, and no one has complete peace except God's children. Because we look around us, we do not have economic peace, religious peace, racial peace, social peace, family peace, or personal peace. And I don't believe any day has had more need of peace than our own. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Apostle Paul explains where conflicts come from in Ephesians 6. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A lot of times we forget the source of evil in our world. 
And there is an enemy that will attack us in any way he can to take away our peace. We are openly reminded when we look at today, when we look at the Middle East and what's going on there, there are wars in Africa right now as well. There are rebellions in various places. And then to bring it more personal, there are constant conflicts in relationships. In work, home, family, and friends, there's always potential for misunderstandings, jealousy, arrogance to flare up, unforgiveness that causes problems. We see peacemakers uh, thinking that a cessation of conflict you stay on your side and I'll stay on mine. That's not peace. Never will bring peace. I mean, good fences make good neighbors. We've all heard that. But the reality, the best neighbors are those who get along without fences because of the relationship in Jesus Christ. Then we have those who call for peace at any price. I'll do anything to have peace. That thinking doesn't make a lot of sense because if you just lay down and let others trample over you, that's not peace as well. I believe the meaning of God's peace is found in his truth and righteousness. You want peace? Follow God. John MacArthur puts it this way, the, the essential fact to comprehend is that peace about which Jesus speaks is more than the absence of conflict and strife. It is the presence of righteousness. Only righteousness can produce the relationship that brings two parties together. People can stop fighting without righteousness, but they cannot live peaceably without righteousness. Righteousness not only puts an end to harm, but administers the healing of love. Think about God's peace. What is that? What is God's peace really? I want you to consider the Hebrew word shalom. We've all heard it, right? How many of you think it means peace? How many of you think it means howdy? How many of you think... Um, hello or goodbye it means much 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 more than that if you roll together completeness soundness welfare happiness peace safety health friendship all with and through God you begin to hit on the meaning of shalom One Hebrew website I looked at this week says the easiest way to help you to remember the deeper meaning is the phrase, God's highest good to you. Now, we don't think about that when we say shalom or hear it, do we? But that's the meaning. And in Hebrew, you'll hear people say shalom, shalom. Well, in Hebrew, there's no capital letters. 
There's no exclamation points. And, and to really make a point, they repeat the words. Shalom, shalom. God's shalom did not change between the Old and New Testament. God's special peace was in Jesus Christ. In John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of peace in you? That comes on focusing our lives on Jesus Christ. Do we understand it completely? No. In fact, in his letter to the Philippians, uh, the apostle Paul wrote, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. So to be a peacemaker, you can kind of break it down into four things. First, a peacemaker has to have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, you can't really be a peacemaker. Second, a peacemaker leads others to Christ. They don't look down on others. Well, there's a homeless guy over there. Bruce, I notice there's like an old foam pillow or something sitting in front of our... Is that from some homeless guy that sleeps here on occasion? I have no idea. I just saw the two trashes and you left. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, buddy. I'll get you for that one. That wasn't a peaceful statement, by the way. (laughs) It's a saved person's focus to bring others to Christ. Third, a peacemaker works to make peace with others. A peacemaker tries to build bridges of peace between people and God and between people and people. I know as a fact, this is a different thing because a lot of people want peace, but they only want the bridge to go their way. You can only have peace in Israel if you become whatever they want you to become. That's kind of the attitude of it. Sometimes those bridges can't be built. But Paul, once again, in Romans 12, 18, says, if possible, so far as it's up to you, live peaceably with all. And in verse 21, he continues, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Fourth, a peacemaker strives to find points of agreement. There's somebody you don't have peace with. I bet you there's some point you could agree on. You know, I'd like to make peace with our pastor. But, you know, he loves the Seahawks and I can't get through that. It's it's just tough. We try to find points of agreements, but we never compromise righteousness and truth. We never can. Again, from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4.15, 
rather speaking the truth in love. Now, I have people I've had difficulties with, and some won't even answer my phone calls. But at least I can pray for them, right? And truthfully let God know that I want peace. Not a lot of people. It's not like the whole world is against. I, I want you to know that. It's just me, you know, and uh, some people. But we're to love our enemies, aren't we? How do we love them? Remember, at the end of our thing, peacemakers will be called children of God. Now, we would understand as a parent, we love and protect our children, even when they get older and leave home. We want the very best for them. And no matter what we do, we're not always going to have peace with people. We really under, have to understand that. Our next verse is, happy are the harassed. Two verses. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Early in my construction career, oh, a few years after I started in construction, I worked with a guy who claimed Christ. Had a big cross on his hard hat and and just, you know, went around the job site and his language was such that it would embarrass a sailor. You've seen the type, right? And people would harass him. Boy, you're not saying much for a Christian, are you? I asked him one day how he felt about the harassment. And he quoted the verse to me, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You know, there was something there that did not add up. It was way different. And there's a couple types of persecution mentioned here. First, persecution for being righteous, for doing the right thing. When I ran construction jobs, that's what I told my guys, no matter what, we do the right thing. We don't cut corners, we don't do this, we just do the right thing. And we can be persecuted for that. The second is being harassed for Jesus' sake. And at the time of harassment, we never know the outcome, do we? Somebody puts on a big tirade about us and Christ and our relationship with him we don't know the outcome. Years ago, I was a superintendent on building a Home Depot in Santa Fe, California. The front of the building, the framing was up, the front of the building was gonna be plastered. And in construction, when you plaster a big area, you have to have control joints in it, otherwise the plaster cracks. So it was a Friday. The guy installing the expansion joints for the plaster was a big Samoan. 
I mean, you've seen the stereotype, huge. And he started his layout wrong, meaning the lines behind the Home Depot sign would be out of whack. So I told him he was doing the wrong thing. I told him he needed to correct it. He was just starting out. He just started in the wrong spot. At the end of the day, I went back and looked, and he was just finishing up, and he never corrected his mistake. Back then, I used to wear T-shirts. Jesus is God. Christ died for you. You know, and they were really popular during that time frame. And I used to wear them every day. When he had done the wrong thing, I was a little apprehensive talking to him about it. Did I mention that he was big? (laughs) I let him know he'd have to come back the next workday, take it all down, and put it back up. And he got mad, really, really mad at me, screaming about my relationship with Christ. And if I made him redo his work, I wasn't a real Christian, and on and on and on. And finally, I just turned around and I said, I'll see you Monday. I was walking into my trailer, up the steps, and I heard this thud next to my trailer. And his axe was embedded in the side of my trailer. A little scary, wasn't it? I was going to call his office, but chose not to. Something just told me not to, so I didn't. Monday morning when I got there, everything was fixed. Everything was the way it was supposed to be, but I didn't see him on the job again. Fast forward a couple years, It was a big, everybody remember Mervyn's stores? It was a big Mervyn's in Burbank. And I'm out checking the job one day and I look up and who did I see? I walked up behind him and I said, hey, big fella, we gonna have any problems here? He spun around and picked me up and squeezed me, I believe, as hard as he could I thought my lungs were going to come out my my throat, you know? And he set me down. He was smiling and crying at the same time. And he said, Rutta, you saved my life. I was crying as we walked back to his truck. He told me that he was fighting God tremendously during that incident, fighting God so much that he and his wife had separated and he had started using drugs. And when he found out that I did not call his office and report him for the axe incident, he thought maybe there is something to this Christianity and maybe it's time I turn my life around. And that night he said he relented to God's call. Now he said, no drugs. He and his wife were back together. They were in church every Sunday and they watched the nursery because their little baby girl was in there. 
Even when you get reviled, God can work. And I think about that and it brings tears to my eyes all the time. Me. God used me. God uses us in strange ways. We might be lied to, cursed at, lied about, have our reputation crushed, especially these days with all this canceling that goes on in social media and stuff like that. But God has a plan for that. And God can use us no matter what we're going through and what we're dealing with. If, if we focus on truth and righteousness. Jesus goes on to say, you're salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. There's a couple thoughts about this. What's the value of salt? Go down and buy a little can of Morton for what, 10 cents, 19 cents? A little can of Morton is how much? All right, one person answer me, how much? $4 for that little thing of salt. Man, I haven't bought salt in a long time. We can tell. <laughs> You know, salt is its flavor. But more importantly, in those days, salt was a tremendous commodity. You had gold, silver, and salt. Actually, silver, gold, and salt. Now think about that. Roman soldiers were often paid for about that little Morton thing of salt for a month in salt. It was that important. Contracts were often sealed with salt. Second Chronicles 13, verse 5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Wow, salt was that important. And whatever else it represented, it represented something of very, very high value. Food can be kind of drab and tasteless without it. Not too much, but the right amount. Christians are valued today as much as salt was, if not a lot more. And if we're the salt of the earth, what are we to do? We're to give the world some kind of tastiness, some kind of, you know, I want that. The world can be drab and tasteless without salt. Someone said, Christians have no business being boring. Our function is to add flavor and excitement to the world. Amen. Now, salt poured on a wound is not great, is it? Has that ever happened to anybody? 
You get a little bit of salt and a little bit of nip on your finger and, and uh, more than my band-aid in my wallet is going to help that, right? But you put some in, in a little bit of warm water and gargle it when you have a sore throat. That's helpful. Kills germs in your mouth. That's helpful. But Jesus also said that salt could lose its flavor. Now, how could that be? Well, salt wasn't real pure back then. And there are certain chemical reactions that happened in salt, and I'm sure the people he was talking to didn't understand the chemical reactions, but they are aware of it. Salt could lose its saltiness. Remember the first year or so of being a Christian? That was awesome, wasn't it? We were just, yeah. And now we're kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of losing some of that flavor, you know? And that's not a good thing for us. Our Christianity comes with less excitement, less joy, maybe less attitude. I don't wear them shirts anymore. Can't find them like I used to, but, you know. The world's contaminants kind of creep in. And the enemy takes our eyes off of Christ. Our last two verses. Three. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither can people light a lamp and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All of us are gifted in some way, aren't we? Bruce is really gifted at organizing things and, and getting the food link going and working around the church. I've seen that in him. Sally, you're a, like a learning nurse or are you a nurse, nurse pack practitioner or? A licensed nurse. A licensed nurse. That's a gift from God. Elaine, she's in the same field. She does really good. This man is gifted in music. I've got a guitar and I can barely play the darn thing. But this guy last week, when the piano wasn't working, picked up a guitar, tuned it a little bit, and led us through worship, and he got all the chords right. <laughs> How does that happen? We need to give glory to God for those things. We need to walk around like we're the light of the community. Some people walk around like they're living off the lemons grown here. Everything's kind of sour. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that he might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen he knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers.
Our light needs to shine. It needs to be a beacon to people around us and to the whole world. And how does our light shine? It shines from our good works, the things we do. And here the Greek word for good is kalos and refers to the beauty of the works more than the quality. Doesn't omit quality. But the beauty meaning people see them. People are attracted to them. And what, we, what do we do with that light that we have? In everything, we give God the glory. You guys who do food link, you give God the glory. He's put things in place so you can serve our community. Our pastor gives God the glory for the things he does within the church. And people see that and respond to it. We need to deflect the thanks, the appreciation that we get sometimes, or we can, we can take it, but we always need to give God the glory for it. God has gifted us in certain ways. And what does it do? It opens doors to share the gospel or to encourage others to follow Christ. And that's what I got today.